Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspire Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. God is good. Amen. How y'all doing? 11 a.m. It's been a long time. It's been a long time to step back in this pulpit. I think there was one week where I, but it's been about eight weeks um, and it's been a beautiful eight weeks. There's been things that I've been able to do, uh, projects uh, within the church that I've been able to have. Also just been able to kind of seek the Lord and experience some refreshing. I want you to know that we need rest. Uh, we need rest. Um, all of us do, uh, um, from, from all of us. And uh, this world is so weary. The Bay Area is weary. Y'all feel that? Yeah. It's tiring here. Yeah. It's tiring. Um, but God is good. And so I am excited just to be back in the saddle. Um, and today we start a new sermon series that we are entitling Origins. Yeah. Origins. Origins. And I believe God has guided us, the Spirit has guided us to walk through the book of Genesis, well, at least the first three chapters of Genesis, uh, to go back to the creation narrative. Australian sociologist John Carroll, who's not a believer, he said this, the the church in the West is in trouble because it has forgotten its story. The church in the West is in trouble because it has forgotten its story. Do you know the story? As you see, our theme is everywhere. Know the story. Tell the story. Do you really believe that as followers of Jesus, we have a better story? Or do you think that maybe your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your family members, maybe you feel like they have a better story and maybe you've been nervous or intimidated or afraid to share. Do you understand how good and beautiful and lovely your story is? I'd like to maybe give you an overview of the story before I get into the particular portions of this message. But if you really wanted to know the story of scripture, you could probably deduce it to four chapters and I believe Dr. Timothy Keller is one of those individuals who this, this kind of concept of these chapters, or at least I received that concept of this, these chapters from him, but you could break the story of scripture into four chapters. It would probably look a little something like this. Chapter one, creation. Where do we come from? It answers the question, where do we come from? Chapter two, fall. Where did it all go wrong? Because it doesn't take a Christian to look around and realize it's broken. Chapter three, redemption. And so what did God do about it to make it right again? And finally, chapter four, restoration. Where's it all headed to? Where are we going? I mean, that's the story. Chapter one, creation. Chapter two, fall. Chapter three, redemption. And chapter four, restoration. That beautiful future when God will come and right all wrongs and he'll make all things new. That's what we believe. It's a beautiful story. But the church in the West is in trouble because we have forgotten a story. 
And, and, and it's a story that this postmodern world rejects. And yet, it is the only story that can bring universal meaning to all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender or socioeconomic status. It's the only story that can offer satisfying answers to some of life's biggest questions. Questions like, where did we come from? Where are we going or why are we here? And as followers of Jesus with access to the scriptures, we have the answers that this world is searching for. Yet, we still fall short in telling the story. And I think maybe for many of us, we fall short in telling the story because maybe we don't know the story. Maybe we haven't. I mean, you might know the story and that you've read it a few times, but maybe we don't really truly know the story and the author of the story. So today, we're going to start where every story starts in the beginning with the origins of it all. And it's my prayer. It really is my prayer that Inspired Church would not just learn and know the story, but that we would learn and know the story to be a church would not be intimidated to tell the story everywhere we go. I want you to know that the Bay Area and beyond, they need a better story. This can't be it. Live your life in the rat race. Work at home never stops. Wrestle through the tensions of trying to buy a house. As if that is all you need to be fulfilled and satisfied. Absolutely not. We have a better story. So I want to pray. And then we're going to get into this message and get into really the next nine months where we're going to be challenged not just to be a congregation that gathers us for and no more, but scatters for the glory of God. And we tell the story. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. My hope is that this message, this series deepens our worship, our admiration of of your glory, your splendor, your majesty. But I also pray that it would inspire us to leave our seats and to tell the story to the world that needs your story. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Whether you know it or not, whether conscious or subconscious, whether it's on purpose or accidental, everyone in this room has adopted a worldview that shapes the way you think about life. Your worldview is the framework or the lens by which you process all things. Your worldview is the lens by which you think through subjects like God and faith, gender and sexuality, life, death, suffering, love, friendship, singleness, marriage, so on and so forth. You see these themes through a particular worldview. And the answers to these questions 
and the behaviors that follow the answers, right? Because as we believe, we behave. It's filtered through our worldview. And the Bay Area is full of them. It's so funny, I, I am recently a part of a church planting network and I've been uh, offered an amazing opportunity to sit with church planters in the Bay Area as someone who has planted and to share the testimony and to attract more planters to the Bay because what we're finding out is that everyone is leaving to plant everywhere else. And there's this great Bay Area escape, right? With the escape, whether it's political or whatever it is, it's this escape as if the Bay Area is left to Satan and sin, but God is here and he wants a body that is anchored in the Bay Area for the glory of God, no matter how dark you think it is. And it's so funny because people say, oh, you planted in the Bay. Oh my gosh, it's so crazy. And they just totally deny God. I'm like, well, you got your idols in the South too. Your religiosity is an idol. Idolatries are everywhere. But I feel there's some intimidation and fear to tell the story, but I want you to know we have a beautiful story. And can I tell you, this is why Genesis was written. This is why Genesis was written. Let, let me give you a little context, okay? Just a little context, a little prelude before we actually dive into the text so you can understand, because a lot of us will bring our assumptions about the book of Genesis into this room. Let me just share a few things that I think will be helpful before we get into the text. Number one, did you know Genesis was written to an ancient people? And not only was it written to an ancient people, it was using ancient imagery familiar to them, but not you. So when you get in the text and you begin to read it, the first thing you can't do is begin to try and familiarize what is being said. It's not for your world. It was given to an ancient world. Number two, this might be a little mind-blowing, especially for some of you who've been in church for a long time. If you haven't been in church, you could just laugh at them for not listening, but nonetheless. Number two is, did you know Genesis was written to a newly freed people who had escaped 400 years of slavery in Egypt? Do you know that? Did you know Moses penned Genesis? He's the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And did you know he penned it and he gave it to Israel as they were leaving Egypt and entering into Canaan? And he collected stories from the elders and the Holy Spirit inspired him and he wrote this text. Why do I say all that? Well, I say all that because it was not written to satisfy your modern need of scientific like inquiry. Are you with me? Like we want to debate, you know, old earth or new earth, right? Anybody heard of those debates? Something like, what is that, right? And all the nerds said, yes, let's talk about that. After church, let's grab coffee. Like how old is the earth, right? Is it, is it six literal days? Right? When, when God said a day, was that like a thousand years? Like, y'all know the story, some of you, or maybe some of you, but it, those who like to debate about these things, right? Or, or how about the mystery of dinosaurs? Like, where are the dinosaurs at? That's what I hear, right? Where are, the, where, are those good, where are those dinosaurs, Pastor? Let's talk about that. Now, I, I don't, I, this curiosity is good and it's beautiful and it's lovely. It just has to be put in its place. If we go to this text with those questions, we'll run the risk of missing the entire point. God is not writing to Israel to talk about dinosaurs. Amen? Amen. We can still talk about it, though. Gerald, I know we can. Gerald, me and Gerald will go there. 
Moses, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned Genesis to teach the Israelites how to live as God's countercultural community in a foreign land full of competing idols and ideologies. That's why Genesis was written. I feel like I need to say that again. Moses pens Genesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to a community that was in a foreign land full of competing foreign gods. Letting them know that your story is not like theirs. And so it's to this community, Moses writes, a new origin story. And it's where we find our text, Genesis 1. And we're going to read just four verses today. Again, for the next several weeks, we're going to walk through Genesis. But we're going to read Genesis 1, verses 1 through 4a. <laughs> that just means the first part of four. And if you want to get your Bibles or your Bibles app, Bible apps, go ahead. We'll have it for you on the screen. I have a lot to say today, so I'll try to go fast through this, but I don't want to lose anybody. Genesis 1, 1 through 4a. Remember the backdrop. An ancient people just escaped Egyptian slavery, now in Canaan, surrounded by foreign gods. Moses says, here's a new story. The scripture reads like this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was we're going to stop there. I hope you would continue to join us for the next several weeks. We're going to pick Genesis up again, but we want to stop here. Today, we begin with God. And today, I want to share with you three critical truths about God that should really shape and inform your worldview. Like if you are going to view life and all of its themes, if you're going to view life, you're going to want to view it through a biblical worldview first shaped by God. So three critical truths about God that should really begin your worldview. If you're taking notes, number one, everything begins with God. Everything begins with God. And if you're waiting for like some deep, you know, philosophical, everything begins with God. Look at Genesis 1, 1a. Just the, just the first few lines. In the beginning, God. With just a few Hebrew words, the narrator introduces us to the main character, and it's not you. Amen? Let's just pray. End of sermon. Like you can just eat that today. Just walk out of this room and know that in the beginning, it wasn't you, but it was God. Though Genesis is an origin story, it is not the story of the origins of God. Notice the text does not attempt to prove God because it assumes God. It doesn't try to argue for his existence, nor does it desire to offer up like convincing proofs. 
He is, as American philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote, the God who is there. He's already there. So when the scripture says, in the beginning, God, the text is establishing to the people, God is preeminent. God is primary. God is priority. Theologian Don Carson puts it like this. The God of the Bible is not an object to be evaluated. This is not how the Bible works. We don't examine him. He examines us. We don't judge him. He judges us. We don't test him. He tests us. The Bible makes it clear immediately. This is his story, not ours. And God is not an object for you to try and discern whether he's there or not. He is the God who is there. Wow. He is before all things. He is the eternal one, pre-existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not an object to be examined or scrutinized, but he is God to be extolled and worshiped. So the text provides us with an early tension. Y'all feel that tension already inside? Well, wait a minute. I, I got to know who he is. And he's got to prove himself. And he's got it right. Y'all already feel that tension? How dare you just tell me to accept. The text immediately provides us with an early tension. Either you'll prioritize his will in his way or your will in your way. Either the primacy of God will be the lens by which you view all of life or the lens will be the primacy of self. God will either be the supreme figure, figure in his story or play a background role in your story. We begin with God because Genesis begins with God. And to paraphrase A.W. Tozer, who wrote this, I believe, in his book entitled Knowledge, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. You might have came in here today thinking the most important thing about you is the job that you have, the career, the title, the position, the money, the relationship, the friendships, the status, the power, the respect. But A.W. Tozer says none of those things are important. What is the most important thing about a man is in his deep heart what he conceives God to be like. Everything begins with God. As simple as that is, if that's not at the first place of your worldview, then everything else will be distorted. Number two. God is distinct from everything that has been made. Simple phrases with deep implications. 
What do I mean by that? Theologically, this is called God's transcendence. Let me, let me explain this. Let's, let's finish off Genesis. Genesis says, one, says, in the beginning, God. But then it continues in verse one saying what? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, immediately when I say heavens, everyone is going to think right now with your 21st century minds. What I want you to know, heavens and earth simply means skies and land. Now, in the opening line of the scripture, all the necessary components that make up the universe are there. Did you know that? I want you to look at the text. In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Instantaneously brought into existence by the creator. Now, notice where God is and where he is not. Let me explain this. And these concepts might get a little heady, so I'm going to do my best to explain this. I want you to know we are always open to grab a coffee, to grab a lunch, and have a further discussion. But I'm going to do my best in this room to try and simplify. Notice where God is and where he is not. God is outside of creation. Remember, God is distinct. What do I mean by that? In the beginning, God creates time, space, matter, universe, and God stands outside. Y'all see that? God is outside of creation. In other words, he is not limited to time. He is not made up of matter. And he is not confined to a space. God is not within creation. God is outside of creation. That already messes you up. We don't even have a concept for that because everything that we know is what we touch, feel, see, and sense within creation. But God tells his people, I got a new story. And your story is a God who's not in it, but above it, beyond it, set apart, holy. Hmm. He is separate, he is distinct, he is set apart, he is not made, he is the uncaused cause, whereas the universe and everything in it depends on him to exist. He is truly self-sufficient with no need for anything or anyone outside of himself to exist. This is what is referred to as the creator-creature distinction. I'm out of breath. <laughs> this is what's known as the creator-creature distinction and will set us up for the most important fundamental distinctions between the ideologies and the worldviews of the surrounding cultures and the ideology and worldview of the people of God. This is what I'm just calling the birth of theism. Some of you are like, okay, I don't want to do any isms. I want to go back to college, Pastor Phil. We're going to do our best this morning again to try to take these terms so we can learn here. The birth of theism. Let me say this. When Israel escaped from Egyptian slavery and entered into Canaan, 
they were exposed to a worldview that had been derived from ancient Mesopotamian origin stories. In fact, you can look this up. There's an epic called the Enuma Elish. This epic is a Mesopotamian origin story about how the world came to be. Now, in this story, it features multiple gods and celestial monsters at war with one another. And in this story, the land, the sea, the stars, the sun, they are explained as severed body parts of defeated gods. Are you with me? And it was into that ancient world. And it was against those origin stories that a radical new story was starting to be told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was no antagonistic monsters to overcome. No rival deities to resist. And the sun, stars, and moon were not divine beings, but they were created objects, servants to the creator. In a world full of mythological gods and goddesses, Israel learned to tell the story. The story of the one true God who created all things Effortlessly by the word of his mouth, by the power of his word. And can I say this? This story is still radically challenging and opposing and confronting the idolatries and ideologies of our culture. Let's go with another ism, monism. Ideologies like monism, which is the opposite of theism. Monism really is the rebirth of gods and goddesses. An author and theologian, Peter Jones, writes this book, The God of Sex. It's a really incredible book. I know you're like, well, God of Sex. (laughs) Incredible book. But he writes, and, and this idea, this concept kind of flows from a particular chapter in that book. But monism is the rebirth of gods and goddesses. And, and, and it's, the, it's the pantheistic belief in the divinity of all things. Now, can I just say this? We're not talking about Mesopotamia thousands of years ago. We're talking about your coworkers. We're talking about your friends. We're talking about your neighbors. We're talking about your family. And we're talking about some of you in this room today still hold on to this concept. This is the idea that the universe is God, right? That all of nature, right? The circle of life, it's the force from Star Wars, right? It's the idea that the universe is God and that all of nature, including humanity, share like divine attributes. Are you with me? In this system of thought, God has no special place. He is not distinct. He is not set apart. He is not separate. He is not transcendent because he is everything and everyone. Or how about ideologies like the scientific theory of naturalism, championed by 
They call themselves the new atheism, but they've been around for a long time. I'm ready to call them the old atheism. But folks like Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion and Sam Harrison, Christopher Hitchens. It's, it's the claim that all that exists or all that can exist is matter, space, energy, and time. That's, that's the claim. Right, Pastor Roger? He's <laughs> my local uh, apologist. Naturalism. That there's nothing outside. That all that exists is inside time, space, matter, and energy. And that anything claiming transcendence like the God of the Bible should be dismissed or even mocked for being weak-minded or unintelligent. Yet, some of the greatest minds in all of science and philosophy the world has ever seen are Christians. Now, some of you are like, well, that's not a big deal. Well, let me tell you why. And as Don Carson points out, even within its own camp, atheism is full of ambiguity. In fact, Dr. Tim Keller tells us that if you were to just kind of bring it all down at the end of the day, whether you believe in God or you don't, it's all faith. Even if you could reduce the complexities of the universe to a singularity, you still wouldn't be able to answer the question, where did it come from? And why is it here? To which the Christian would happily reply in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The difference between the believer's story and the atheist story is that we have an answer. That works in a lot of different ways. Now, don't misunderstand me. Oh, please don't misunderstand me. I am not implying that God and science is incompatible. We have this weird, weird, like, dumb dichotomy sometimes. Like, we fight between wisdom and mystery, you know, like as if they can't coexist. And I, you know, I shouldn't go off. Stay on your notes, Pastor Phil. But, you know, new technologies we get afraid of, new things, you know what I mean? Like, we're just, what is this, right? And, and I understand to some degree, but I want you to know that God in science is compatible. Yeah. God is an intelligent designer. The, the complexities and the nuances and the scientists and the philosophers are able to look at this earth and see that God has given us abilities. Can I just say, what I'm saying is that when a Christian engages in scientific inquiry, it leads them to God, not from God. That's when your worldview starts with God. When you begin to observe and you begin to test and you begin to see, it doesn't bring up doubt, but it deepens worship. Psalm 19 once says, the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 will continue to say that the sun and the moon, they speak testimonies. Paul says in Romans 1 that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by what is made. The difference between our worldview and our story and everyone else's story is that for them, it leads them to worship creation. But for us, we worship the God of creation who stands outside, above, beyond, set apart. So what are the practical implications? Well, a few things. Monism denies God's distinction by confusing him with what has been made. Atheism denies God's distinction by denying that he even exists. Theism, however, sanctifies God. 
affirms his holiness by acknowledging that he is distinct. Mm. All three participate in worship. Do you know that? All three worship. One worships creation. One worships creator. And can I just say this? All three can be whittled down to really two things. If you could take all three and just, let's just put it down. Like give it to me straight, Pastor Phil. All three, all of the different beliefs, thoughts, whittled down to these two things. Number one, either you're gonna enthrone yourself and live according to your own will or you're gonna enthrone the transcendent creator and live according to his word. That's what it all boils down to. At the end of the day, what this is, is a wrestle for lordship. Number three, you guys are doing great. I love this. You think about it so far, we've talked about God's transcendence, right? Talk about God being first. And we talk about God being distinct outside of creation. But I love number three. God is near to his creation. Mm. We don't just serve a high and lofty God who is high and lifted up above and separate outside of creation, but we also serve a God who is near and close and with. Mm. This is called the imminence of God. And you always say, well, where did you get that in the text? I'm glad you asked. Let's read verses two through five. The scripture reads like this. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the scripture goes on. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Are you ready for this? Here it is. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. This is so beautiful. You have a story. You have a beautiful story. We're so intimidated. There's so much warfare. But yet our story is so beautiful. Though God is separate, though God is high and lifted up, holy and set apart, he still desires to be close to his creation. So in verse 2, he hovers. He hovers. Man, if this isn't welling up worship inside of you, I I mean, that's just me. I went down there last. I remember I did this at 9 a.m. and I got to stay up for the camera, but I was just, I think I got to do it. We, we, sorry, we get so used to consumerism Christianity, right? It's built like a theater. Come in, grab your popcorn, grab a seat, right? Drink a little coffee while you're worshiping. And I love the hospitality of this church and we could debate that, but I think sometimes in doing that, we, sometimes cannot normalize, and this happens with anything, you normalize something, right? You take something that's honorable and kind of make it normal. 
and we could just lose our wonder. Right? And so the Spirit is hovering over his creation. And that word hovering is used in Deuteronomy by the same author, Moses, to describe a mother bird over her young. Now, I can't forget we're in the bay, and I know there's Mother God people walking around. Y'all ever been approached by Mother God folks? Tell them the story. They got a story to tell. I want you to, go, I want you to know that I'm not arguing that God is a mom. I want you to know God is outside of creation. Spirit. But in this particular space, he is using the nurturing, mothering idea of a bird. Y'all with me? Okay. Just want to make sure we get that. I want to make sure we have the awe of him hovering over his creation. But that's not all. The scripture says that he speaks. How important is communication to a relationship? Right? And it doesn't matter if you're married or if you're single, you have friendships, family members. I mean, communication is important. Your job, right? You're, everywhere you go, we need to articulate and communicate. And so we are introduced to a God who communicates, a God who speaks. And when he speaks, things are created. And when he speaks, he speaks because he wants to be known. I'm so glad the God of the Bible is not the distant deity of deism, unconcerned with the affairs of his creation, nor is he some mystical, impersonal force that is abstract and impossible to comprehend. But the God of the Bible is personal, relational, and he desires to be close and to disclose himself to us in words that we can understand. Again, it goes back to that, like, we, you know, mystery, right? Like, we, we have this tendency to want to, like, deviate from the scriptures and pontificate on all these things that God hasn't spoke about. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, I don't, it's dangerous. I, I, I just, what God has said and what God has revealed is what he said and re-revealed, and that's just a great place to stay, Right? And then a lot of times we see people like naming angels and naming demons and, and creating all of these kind of these other theologies and angelologies and demonologies. And, and don't get me wrong, there are angels and there are demons and God will reveal the supernatural. But at the end of the day, be careful not to worship creation and look at the creator who has revealed himself. If you're going to be in awe of something, if you're going to dive deep into something, if you're going to look into something, let it not be the angels or the demons or, or the mysteries, but let it be the word of God, the creator who has revealed himself to you. If you're going to dive and get lost in the wonder and beauty and majesty of anything, let it not be creation, but creator. Creation is just a point. And as you look at it, it points to God. Sweat. How's my time? Three lessons, and then we'll finish. <laughs> the famous line. Three lessons we can learn. I promise to be quick lessons. We can learn from God speaking. Amen? Amen? Three lessons we can learn from God speaking. Lesson number one. You're not an accident.
There might be somebody who walked in today and you think you're an accident. You're a mistake. Maybe your parents have a, a horror story about how you came to be. And you walk around thinking you're a mistake. And there's some heaviness in this world. Yeah. Isn't that heavy? Yeah. To walk your whole life thinking you're a mistake? You are not the result of a cosmic accident. But you're a product of the will of God. That's what we learned about. When someone speaks, he speaks his mind. And so therefore, the creation that is spoken is the product of a divine will. Which means you're not an accident. You're not a mistake. Because he created by his word, we can be certain that we are wanted. That we are placed here on this planet for a purpose, with a purpose. That our lives are infused with meaning to glorify God, to point to the creator, to tell the world that there is something beautiful beyond us. This radically opposes an atheistic worldview. That really, if you just summed it all up simply, would say, you came from nothing. You're going nowhere. You are nobody. Think about that. Where did you come from? Nothing. Accident. Random. Act of chance. No purpose. No meaning. No depth. No beauty. Are you feeling hopeless? Do you feel like you have no direction in your life? We have a better story. Guys, these aren't ancient Mesopotamian people. These are your coworkers. These are your family members. These are your neighbors. These are your friends. This is some of you right now. We have a better story. Number two, the significance of God speaking. Number one, you're not an accident. Number two, we can trust that God's word is good. God's word is good. You see the pattern of creation? God speaks. Creation obeys, and everything is good. Wow. That'll preach right there. God speaks, creation obeys, and everything is good. In fact, the only time everything is not good is when creation doesn't obey. Right? It's an act of disobedience, the fall, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. That disrupted everything. God speaks. Creation obeys. And it is good. You see, when everything submits to the word of the creator, it is good. But when we take matters into our own hands and live by our own word, chaos and disorder reign.
Y'all feel that? Live your life in disobedience for a season and see how chaotic things can get. Some of us are there now. Disorder, tension, rivalry, envy, hatred, murder, dissension, jealousy, envy. Number three, final implication of God speaking. When God speaks, light (laughs) consumes the darkness. Notice the hovering Holy Spirit positioned in the dark. Are you there? You with me? Something really important about Hebrew stories, and really stories in general, but in particular Hebrew stories, is that the first words of the character are important. In fact, in the Hebrew ancient storytelling, when the, character, the main character is introduced and that main character speaks, pay attention to his first words or her first words because it says something about the nature of the character. First words are important, right? Those of us have children, Right, when they say their first word, right? What does he say? Mom, dad, (laughs) get it on video, right? Oh man, I missed it. First words are important. The first word of the character, of the main character says something about who that main character is. And here we have in the beginning, God said what? Let there be light. God speaks light. In dark places. This is what he does. That's what he did in my life. His word spoke light to darkness, chaos, disorder. He reveals what has been hidden. He shows you things that you've never seen before. And where evil and darkness once prevailed, he shines the light of his love. And that light heals. We have a story. We have a beautiful story. And we need to know the story and we need to tell the story. As we conclude, I want to remind you of these three critical truths about God that will really shape our lives and shape the rest of our sermon series. Number one, everything begins with God. Number two, God is distinct from everything made. Not to be confused with creation. He is creator. And finally, number three, God is near to his creation. I said this earlier, but I think it deems repeating as we prepare just to respond. It all boils down to this. Your worldview either starts with you or it starts with God. At the end of the day, there's only really two choices. If you conclude there is no God or that maybe you are God, part of this divine universe, then the logical result will be your own life lived in your own way and you'll live it with whomever doing whatever 
however you please. Right? That, that's the logical ramification of your belief system. There is no God, or if you are divine, then you determine what is right and wrong. You live the way that you live. You're the master of your own ship. You're in charge of your own destiny. You make, you create. Yet Genesis 1 tells us that that's not the case. The text tells us that there is a God who is there. That he is holy. That he is separate. That he is unique. That he's set apart. And that he created all things. And the text tells us that he demonstrates his authority over all things with the power of his word. This makes him king. Sovereign. Sovereignly decreeing. And creation is his kingdom. So how are you viewing God in faith? Right and wrong. Gender and sexuality. Life and death. Suffering and love. Marriage. Singleness. Friendship. Material. Career. Money. Is God the starting point? Is he the preeminent place? Is he the lens by which you view all these things? Or are you the master of your own fate? Are you the one who decides? Are you the one who determines? Aldous Huxley, author of A Brave New World. Listen to what he says. And he has an atheistic worldview. He says this. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. He goes on to say, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied meaning, the Christian meaning. They insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning, whatever. Let me break that down for you. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is this. That if you believe in a creator and you acknowledge that he is separate and holy, you will live your life in light of that. But if you want to live your life the way that you want to live, you want to lead it the way that you want to lead it, you want to make the decisions that, in other words, you want to be God, then you'll have to dethrone this creator and deny his existence. And so this author concludes, the only way to live that I wanted, the way, only way that I could live the way that I wanted to live was to make sure that I lived with the understanding that life had no creator, no meaning, no purpose. Because if it 
doesn't, then I can do what I want. And you know what happens then? We enter into a evolutionary worldview in which justice and morality doesn't exist. And it's survival of the fittest. And the strongest should always win. Might makes right. But if there is a God, and He is just, and He's holy, then life is full of beauty and wonder, and we should live for Him. We're going to take a moment to respond in time of worship and singing. And my prayer is that the, the depths of who God is would deepen your worship. But here's what I want you to process as we get ready to sing. I want you to process, am I living my life in light of the reality of God? Or am I, as one author put, a functional atheist? Are there areas in my life that I am disobedient to the word? And in that area, am I functioning as if God doesn't exist and is not holy? That's the question. Let's take a moment to process together and allow the Holy Spirit to do what he needs to do with his word in your life. Now let's respond. You choose to stand, you choose to kneel. How that is today? Let's just exalt and recognize
Paul tells us in Romans to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And he calls us, the, this is our act of worship. This is our response to a transcendent creator who is near. It's worship. And worship is my life laid down, my rights and my life and my will laid down to his, in submission to his. This is the difference between maybe somebody who just maybe even casually attends versus somebody who is following Christ as a disciple. And here's what I want to say before you leave. Like, I just want to, the story is that in the beginning, God created everything good. But we find out soon enough that everything goes bad because man has disobeyed. But that's not the end of the story because act three is redemption is that God in the form of Jesus Christ, God puts on body, flesh, meat. His son, Jesus Christ, enters into time, space. This God that is transcendent, this God is that outside, then steps in and he lives a perfect life. And then he dies an innocent death. And in this story, we are redeemed by the death of Jesus Christ. And in this story, the beautiful thing about his death is this. This is what the cross is. On that cross, your failure, your sin, your mistake. Every time you were that creation that didn't obey but disobeyed, your disobedience would put upon him. And on that cross, we see Jesus slaughtered, judged on your behalf for your sin. And so we give to him our mistakes. We give to him our sin. We repent and we give to him. And guess what he gives to us? He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his purity. He gives you his perfection. So that if you would just trust and believe that story, if you would believe that story is true, you would be made right before God. And so what we did to mess it all up is redeemed and restored. And all things are being made new again. And we are promised to be with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Full circle, everything will be good again. Do you believe that story? Do you trust that story? Do you put your faith in that story? If you do, you're saved. So the scripture says if you would repent of your sin and you believe that story is true, you'd be saved. And so Heavenly Father, I pray that throughout this room, even folks that are in this room right now that are feeling like sinners that have walked away. They're feeling the condemnation of Satan. They're looking at their lack of obedience and feeling condemned. Lord, I pray right now that they would look at the cross and not themselves and that they would see the slaughtered Savior on their behalf. And then instead of trying to be and do good things, that they would just receive the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. And that they'd walk out of here worshiping, living their life in light of this glorious truth, trusting the Holy Spirit to do a great work. So Father, I pray for Inspire Church. I pray that we would know the story. And I pray that we would tell the story so that the Bay Area and beyond would see a harvest use us father we love you you're so good you're so faithful you're holy but you're near god you're so wonderful so be with us as we leave this place
we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. God bless you. And I want to remind you, check out our resource center. We have a book that we're featuring. It's called The Art of Neighboring. If you're feeling like you want to exercise that evangelistic muscle, you just want to be uh, uh, challenged, check out some of the resources we have out there, some of the suggestions we have. Take some invite cards with you. Invite some folks. Y'all are just standing here. You can keep going, but just be sure to check that out. We love y'all. God bless you. Take some cards. Invite somebody to the house of the Lord. Better yet, tell them the story in Jesus' name. Amen.